0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for coming back, listening. I'd like to add a disclaimer for today's episode. It will be a no more silence episode, which means that trigger warnings slash abuse and other topics that can be triggering will be brought up. So please be advised and feel free to listen to the intro and outro though if you'd like. Because before we begin, I'd like to first address the situation in this world. Of course, the war that's going on in Ukraine, all the pain, suffering, loss that's happening. My parents are in Russia right now and it's difficult to think about The situation there for everyone, for the Jews, Ukraine, everyone involved, this is a tough time. Now, on another note, we have received some incredible feedback from the Balchuva episode from last week. So if you haven't listened yet, because there were two episodes last week, make sure to go back and catch up. There is a letter that I want to specifically share with you that I will at the end of this episode, so stick around until the end to hear that. The letter was written by one of our listeners who has a lot to say on the topic, and she brought up important points that she did give permission for me to share with you. So stick around until the end to hear all about that. Next, we wanted to have sponsorships and affiliates on this podcast, so here we go. Check out this novel called The Prophetess. It's a Jewish heroine story, a little like Harry Potter, except the main character is a 17-year-old girl named Rachel, and the magical world she discovers is her own Jewish heritage. Check out this book. I'll link it in the show notes below, and you could use code FRANCISCA for 10% off, personalized signed copies, and special bat mitzvah packages. As you know, this podcast is absolutely free, so here's a way you can support the show and learn about Jewish mysticism. And without any further ado, here we go. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today we have a No More Silence episode with an anonymous guest. And we are so excited to have him share a story with us today. Welcome to the show. The mic is yours. I'd like for you to begin where you feel it seems most relevant to begin.
1: I grew up in New York. My family. Islamad and pretty normal childhood until I was about 12 years old. My parents are very old school. They're professional. We both have pretty good jobs, but we never have like the environment of some people they have parents that make them feel like they could tell them anything. You know, whatever comes up, whatever's bothering you, whatever happens, you can always speak to them. My parents, I think they wanted that to be the case, but it was never really the case. There was no Jewish community watch. No one talked about molestation. Everyone says like, oh, don't let anyone touch you in inappropriate areas, things like that. All parents say that, but like, I never got like the talk. So my brother, he was, I guess, sexually curious or going through something, and he decided to take that frustration and use it in an unhealthy way. He began to molest me. I was about 12 years old for about, say a year. And it was so complicated because when it's like a family member, you don't know who to tell, especially when you're the youngest. You feel like no one's going to believe you. And you feel like you have no one to turn to. No one talks about these things. I also didn't know it was so wrong because I didn't know any better. I was very confusing. Only now do I know that a lot of things that I went through were because, like, me rebelling and getting kicked out of schools and not caring about guide and really going through a lot of things in life. Because... I didn't know who I was. There was trauma that I never dealt with because when you're a child, even if you go through trauma and your parents send you to therapy, you're not emotionally mature enough to actually deal with your traumas. When you're an adult, you learn more about mental health, more about how traumas could affect you, affect your relationships. But when you're 12, 13, 14, even to like you're 18 years old, you don't know how to do the trauma work. You don't know how to talk. When did
0: you decide to tell somebody and who was the first person you shared this with?
1: Oh, I didn't tell anyone probably until I was like 20.
0: So you kept this inside as your big secret all by yourself all these years. And you mentioned therapy. Did you start therapy earlier on in that time before you were 20?
1: I started Therapy when my parents sent me to therapy because I got kicked out of a bunch of yeshivas and they wanted to know what was going on. And I didn't even understand that I was doing all these things because of the trauma. I just thought I'm a rebellious kid. I don't care about Yiddishkeit. I don't care about anything. I just want to have fun or do silly things or whatever it is. I didn't know where it was coming from. So, like, a therapist asked me how come you're acting like this? Or how come you got kicked out of school? And I would just repeat, I don't know. I don't know, like annoying teenagers do. So the therapy never really went anywhere because I wasn't willing to talk about anything. Also for me, I was abused by someone that was male. So anyone that wanted me to be vulnerable, that was a male. So a male therapist would try to get me to trust them it was almost impossible for me to confide in them because I just felt so like uncomfortable just to like even just to be in the same room knowing that they're a therapist knowing that they talk about sensitive things and I'm supposed to trust them I just kind of completely shut down It was only at about 20 years old when Jewish Community Watch was starting to pick up and survivors were telling their stories and things like that, that I realized I had to deal with my stuff because I went away to yeshiva when I turned 14. The one yeshiva got kicked out of that one, but I I never wanted to be home because that wasn't safe for me. And eventually when I was like 20, I started going to therapy.
0: And you asked to go to therapy at that point or was that your parents suggesting or pushing you to do it?
1: I knew someone that was involved with a Jewish community watch and he was a family friend and, and I was speaking to him. And then I, I also went to a JCW event and I heard people talking and it was like triggering, but also I felt like finally there's some, someone's talking like survivors have a voice to actually be heard and people are not pushing them away. And I asked this person, do you know anyone that is a good therapist, that's a female, that's like easygoing, that would understand where I'm coming from? And he actually connected me to a therapist. And that was the first time I actually addressed what happened. Even then, it was still, I couldn't even tell the therapist. The therapist knew why I was there. She didn't know that, like, the details, whatever it was, but she knew it was about sexual abuse, molestation. She knew the story. She knew about it, but she wanted me to tell her, and I couldn't. I literally, the words couldn't come out of my mouth, even just to say I was sexually abused. I couldn't say it.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Then it was like, years after it happened, I pushed it. So far back, it was like in the back of my head. I guess subconsciously, I obviously knew what happened, but I I never addressed it. So this was the first time I, I knew I had to address it, and I just couldn't get to that point. And she handed me a, a napkin, and I wrote it on the napkin, just the word, two words, like sexually abused. Just two words. And that's how I got started with therapy, but even then, I wasn't I did some trauma work, but I also went and I lived after Yeshiva. I went back home, so I was back in the same
0: environment situation,
1: yeah, and my parents still have no clue and I went back and I lived in my parents' house in the same room as my abuser until the day I got married.
0: You said the abuse happened from about 12 to 13 years yeah. old. And I'm assuming you've never talked to him about it at that point.
1: I, he tried to bring it up, but I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to make like nothing happened. I, really, I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to emotionally, how to react, how to feel, how to, it just felt horrible. It felt like it felt like the most confusing thing in the world. He actually like asked. He's like, "Oh, my therapist mentioned like maybe it's a good idea for both of us to sit down with a therapist." And I was like, "No, no, that's never happening. I have no interest." It made me feel even more uncomfortable. He would ask me like, "Did you speak to anybody about it? Like a therapist? Like maybe you can?" get someone to talk to about it. And I just, I didn't want to discuss it with him. Like, I felt like he betrayed my trust, which he did, obviously. And I didn't want anything from him. I didn't want his help. I didn't want his advice. Like, I just didn't, I didn't want to face it. How old were you? That was like maybe 16 or 17. Like if I would come home for winter break or something like that, and we were walking Somewhere you'd be like, oh, did you speak to a therapist? You this, you that. Maybe it was his guilt and whatever the reason was. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to talk to him about it. It was too messed up. It's also not something you could talk about while you're walking down the street. It's also not something that just comes up organically. It's very uncomfortable to talk about, especially with the person that did it to me.
0: Most people do not end up addressing it with their abusers. I don't know what most people do. I just know most people don't go to court and try to get justice. They, they try to focus on themselves and healing themselves and the abuser sort of stays out of the picture as long as possible. Not always though. You had no choice. It was a family member.
1: Yeah. Also it's, people that go to court, you are going to press charges. A lot of times it's your word versus the abuser's word and you're like put in a courtroom and people are looking at you and you already feel so horrible because of what happened. And then you have all this attention on you. And as a survivor, you think That it's your fault. Sometimes you think maybe I shouldn't have let the person do that, even though it's not your fault. You think that there's a tiny chance that it's your fault or you blame yourself. Or like even my nieces and nephews, when they were little, they would cry. And in my head, I don't know, like seven, eight months, a year, whatever it is, like they wake up of the night and I'm babysitting them and they're crying. In my head, I'm just thinking if my sister-in-law or brother walk in, like I I would tell them it's not my fault, not my fault. That would be the first instinct, because we blame ourselves for things that are not our fault, because that person kind of took away a piece of us. Like, we think that maybe we're the ones that are in the wrong. It's ridiculous. That whole mindset is ridiculous, but it's just sometimes how we think.
0: Are you comfortable sharing some more details about the abuse, or would you... Prefer moving on to the
1: next chapter? Sure. I don't really know Amy by details.
0: Okay. So then let's move on. I'm curious if you ever brought this up to your parents now that you're an adult. Have you ever told them who this was done
1: by? No. Well, now I'm older. I'm married. Thank God. And I feel like now telling my parents, it might help me or it might not but if they don't like take it the way i want them to as in like if i tell them what happened and they sympathize with my brother then it's i don't get the validation i need it could be more harmful for myself and destroy everyone's relationship because in a way i feel selfish it sounds ridiculous but because it's family if i tell my parents and my parents like get upset or whatever it is. And then they tell my other siblings and like everyone doesn't know what to do with themselves. And it creates a whole chaos.
0: I have a question. I understand what you're saying. Do you think your brother did this to anyone else at the time or continued to do it after?
1: No, I don't think so. He actually gave me a letter after I got married, which I feel was very selfish because he knew obviously I was getting married. He's my brother. And it was like two weeks or something like that after I got married. And he gave me this letter apologizing, but also saying why, what happened, happened. Like he was going through some stuff and and my parents were helping him out with what he was struggling with. And the way he worked through it was by abusing me, which felt horrible because, A, I was in La La Land because I had just gotten married. And I was still like in that bubble. And then I'm obviously not going to feel validated from my abuser. But if someone says sorry, you feel like, say sorry, acknowledge what you did was wrong. Never put reasons, never put excuses. It kind of defeats the whole apology. I don't really know if he told my parents, but I do know he feels very guilty. And I could see he's still struggling, which is very weird because I don't feel bad for him. But whenever I see him, I'm constantly reminded of what happened because he's still not doing well as a person. That makes sense.
0: He hasn't moved past that in in his life. Sometimes survivors talk about their stories almost like they're talking about somebody else's story because of how healed they are or past the story doesn't define who they are anymore, even though it was a big part of their self-development and self-discovery.
1: It sounds like I'm sympathizing with him. I really will as much as people say forgive and forget, I can't. I can't forgive him. Like I want to, I don't know if I want to. Is he married? No. Still with with my parents. I like a couple of jobs, quit one, got another one, was oppressed for like a year or two, stayed at home. And you think your parents know
0: his side?
1: I have no idea. I would like to think that if they Did know that they would somehow bring it up and maybe apologize because, like, when I was still living at home, I like later on in my 20s, I wanted to like switch rooms because it's still uncomfortable, obviously. But my parents, like, oh no, we're using that room, whatever it is. And if they actually knew or know now, they would like at least have the, I would like to think they would have the decency to say i'm sorry went through that because like now they're they're kind of babying him they're bring up something he's like struggling with his weight so my parents are like oh he's trying to diet he's trying to this he's trying to weight watchers or whatever and i would say like weight watchers i don't know if that's a great idea because like if you run out of points and you're hungry there's nothing to do No, know um, you my parents, the zero point vegetable <laughs> i know you might as well just start so my parents, my mom would be like, what do you mean? Stop picking on him. Like, you don't understand. He's struggling. And in my head, I'm like, you kidding me? I actually don't think they know. And
0: you don't think you'd be doing them and him a service by connecting the dots. I'm not putting you on the spot.
1: No, no, no. It's totally fine. I think it would be better if it came from him. Because if it comes from me, then one, they're not going to know how to react to what I've said. And then too, like, he would come home from work or whatever it is, and they would just, like, want to, like, either rip him to shreds or, like, speak to him or this. Like,
0: what if you showed your letter to your parents?
1: I don't have the letter. Oh, you don't have the letter. I ripped it up and flushed it down the toilet. There was no advantage of me keeping a letter. I just got married, moved into an apartment. I'm not going to keep around something that's traumatic. Like, that's not how I want my marriage. And like, eventually when I do have children, first of all, I don't want them finding that. That's very disturbing. Also, I don't want that vibe in my house. You know, like I've been through traumas. I try my best to be as positive as I can. I don't need that. Balance. I also, in a way I want to move on, but I also, I would love some validation from my parents about it. When the Chaim Wilder thing came up, I was very heated about it. I was very upset because there were people that thousands of people went to his funeral and like it bothered me to my court like I was just like how is this happening and I was speaking to my parents and I was like telling them and my dad was like you're right it's very hard my mom was like I think you should focus on something else very much not what I needed to hear and my mom's like it's horrible what happened but you shouldn't get so upset. You should focus on other things. And I wanted to just blurt out and say, are you kidding me? Do you not know what happened under your own roof? Well that that wouldn't help anything. If you bring up a trauma and you're not ready to talk about it, you get triggered for a couple of days after. And then you wake up after you tell the person someone or whatever it is, if it doesn't come up organically, then for me at least, I wake up the next morning kind of like in a panic attack and I don't want to like get out of bed. I feel my heart just like racing. And it almost feels like, like it's never going to end. Like the anxiety is just going to keep on happening until I literally pass out. So like, I wanted to blurt it out and be like, you no, this happened whatever. But I just like took a deep breath and I'm like, got this. And then I'm like, okay, ma, I'm going to go. And then I left. But that was also very hard to do because living with the secret, of course, I've told like a the therapist and whatever, and like I think one friend, family members, I haven't told any of my family members until my parents and like any cousins or anything. So it's been like 13 years like that. I've kept a secret.
0: Big secret to keep. And it's something that's still ongoing, hasn't been resolved. Wondering if bringing it up to your parents without sharing the information about who the abuser was can be a beginning, less threatening, and potentially encourage your brother to come forward, share his part of the story, and let them connect the dots, or for him to connect the dots for them.
1: I think maybe like eventually, I also have to be ready to talk to them about it. My therapist told me if I was to address it with my parents, I have to look at all the angles. If I do end up telling my parents, think about how you want them to react and how they could react. So if I tell them that, like, what happened or whatever it is, and they right away take my brother's side and they're like, oh, my God. But what if you don't share the brother part?
0: And this also is very relevant to... People who are in the closet who share with their parents, just like the person themselves had the time to deal with the trauma, whether we're talking about sexual abuse or the trauma of identifying who they are sexually, they had, let's say, months or years to deal with it on their own, whereas the parents, they have the shock factor. Sometimes it's a relief when their children speak up. When a child speaks up and shares it because they always knew or made sense, they suspected it, but they didn't want to initiate for whatever reason, but they have that chance to go and process themselves. So the initial reaction may not be the actual reaction that you may have maybe creating, and I don't want to override your therapist, but maybe expect like a tornado for the reaction And maybe only share part of the story without the brother element. And then after they deal and process, there may be room for a new relationship later on.
1: Same with my parents or? Your parents. I thought you meant with my brother. It's a good idea.
0: The balloon hasn't popped yet for you. You're still in this. Most of the time when I'm interviewing the guest here, it's all in the past. And for now, the abuse is still in the past, but the trauma and the secrets, the balloon of that heavy, and the balloon is wrong because the balloon is light and what you're carrying is super heavy. And this is your your family. This is, you know, you're young and you have a whole life ahead of you and you just got married. It doesn't have to keep growing with that heavy weight.
1: That's very true. Actually, a therapist that I worked with a while ago. He convinced me to tell my parents. He didn't convince me totally, but he said, he said, just think about it. Yeah, obviously we actually stopped working together because of COVID, but he said, your parents bring you into the world and whatever trauma you're holding on your shoulders should be on theirs. You shouldn't think about how hard it's going to be for them to hear about these things. They're here to protect you. They brought you in this world. It's their job to carry whatever you're holding. And he told me that you should just think about it. And I thought about it. And just thinking about it made me feel a lot lighter. And then obviously I went back into my normal state and like pushed it back down. It's also, I have to work on how to bring it up. Like, I have no clue how to bring it up. Well,
0: you're still seeing a therapist. This can be an excellent... Way to plan a meet or maybe have a safe conversation planned with a therapist or invite them to a conversation that sets a serious tone and there's some sort of introduction or anticipation of something serious. So it's not sprung upon them, but I think it would be helpful to go in expecting the worst in terms of their reaction, understanding that their initial reaction is not what's the most important thing
1: here. And my parents are very really like that. Like my mom would react about something and then later she'll text me like, oh, I shouldn't have reacted like that. What I really meant to say was dot, dot, dot. So I could see that happening.
0: And if there is, you know, a third party involved, like a therapist or somebody else who is sort of removed from the situation could be there to provide that safe space where they can react as they need to. One day we'll have parents on the show, parent of a survivor, to talk about what their hell looked like, because it doesn't always begin when they find out. They had to deal with you being kicked out of yeshivas. They have to deal with your brother. If they're in denial, it doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't been through their hell. I'd like to move on to your marriage and your relationship with your wife and how you feel that's. Potentially is a massive transition for you in your life because your home that you grew up in was never a safe space for you. And now you're in a position where you're creating a home and it is a safe space. I hope. Can you talk about that contrast and where you are at?
1: Sure. It's actually like really interesting because my wife and I grew up very differently. She grew up more of like like my parents never told us, I love you like, yeah, you know, you know, we love you. They would never say it. I love you. Like they never said that in that way. Never really validated us. It was always like, this is like, kind of crap happens, deal with it. But my wife's family is more lovey-dovey and always giving hugs. And I didn't know how to even react to it. Because first of all, I never thought that I would find love. I never thought, As a survivor, I never thought I deserved it, honestly. In the beginning, I thought, oh my God, my wife's so amazing. Well, I still think that, thank God. But I thought, how did I get married? Like, I went through so much. Like, do I deserve someone so amazing? It was really interesting because a lot of things that I needed, my parents didn't give me or didn't know how to. Like, let's say if my parents realized how much their child needed a hug, It would have created more of an environment that I'd be able to talk to them, be able to say what's wrong, be able to communicate. And one of the things I worked on a lot was communication. Me and my wife have amazing communication. We talk about everything, literally. When I got married, because I went through sexual abuse, intimacy was like very hard for me because the only intimacy that I had was. Unhealthy it was from abuse, so trying to be intimate with the most important person in your life was exciting, but also terrifying. I actually cried; like it was like super not embarrassing. It was just unexpected. I didn't think that was going to happen. I didn't think I was going to cry and think it would be so triggering. And then I realized how much work I had to do. I had to really speak to a therapist. I had to create an environment with my wife that I know that I'm safe. I know that I don't have to rush anything if I'm not feeling safe. I'm not feeling comfortable. The ball is in my court. Intimacy is something beautiful. And whenever both parties are comfortable and feel a connection that's healthy, then it's beautiful. I never thought I would have that ever. I thought, I was a broken person, literally. But somehow I met my wife, and the most terrifying thing for me was that I would never find someone to marry and like they would never accept me because of what I went through. And now I'm married for three years and I feel blessed every day.
0: Did you share your story with her before you got married?
1: Yeah. When you share your story, With someone that you trust, you also realize that you trust them, and also you kind of give them a part of yourself. And when they don't judge you, and you find out that like it happened to so many people, it felt triggering, but also very validating, because my wife became my family, and I couldn't tell what happened to my family. But I was able to express it to my wife, and she loves me no matter what.
0: No, that's very beautiful and appreciate your honesty and the rawness of this conversation. I think it's very valuable to hear. We recently had on the podcast, Dvorah Enton who spoke about how survivors of sexual abuse don't want to talk about it because they will get that scarlet A on their shidduch resume or something. So what that brings up is not wanting to share any part of that until the ring is on the finger which doesn't allow for this open communication and bonding before the marriage and i think it's it's a prerequisite for a spouse potential spouse to know about such an integral part of the story especially when they're still in it in a big way
1: Oh, 100% actually what i left out was I told my wife that I was sexually abused, but I didn't say who did it to me.
0: See, that's what you could do to your parents, too.
1: Yeah. Your, your
0: wife doesn't know now or before you got
1: married? When we got married, well, she knew before I got married. But she didn't know who actually abused me. I might have told her family. I didn't say, like, I didn't go too far into it. And then when my brother gave me the letter, I completely broke down. She's like, what happened? I'm just like... I couldn't say anything. I just handed her the letter. She read it, and she was just like blown away. And then I just started crying like a like a baby. And we just talked about it, and it helped me grow stronger. It helped my relationship, grow, my marriage, get stronger. Even though it wasn't like the most exciting thing happened right after, like two weeks after, but it helped us grow stronger. And she's like. I think you should read it and then either light it on fire or rip it up and flush it down the toilet. Just put the ball in your court. Like You have this letter, you read it, and now it doesn't need to be around anymore. Just put it somewhere where no one could find it. So that's how she found out.
0: Talk to me about the financial stress and strain of therapy. I know you've mentioned to me off record.
1: Okay, well therapy obviously it's very expensive. There are clinics that are okay, but usually really good therapists go private or they don't take your insurance and it's usually around $200 a session. So like newly married and having to like dish that out is really hard, especially cuz you don't know you're spending. Like you're two kind of not strangers, but You don't know each other's spending habits and stuff. And you're still figuring things out. I did end up getting insurance and then had therapy for a little bit. And then COVID happened. And then i like one therapist and then it didn't work out. And then another therapist and then that therapist, because it was COVID, I couldn't see that she was pregnant because it was over Zoom. And then she's like, oh, by the way, having a baby soon. I'm like, "Um, congratulations. But also like, what the heck? And another therapist after that and then she left the clinic and then like so in order to get a therapist that actually will be there for you obviously like people move on people grow like things like that but when you're dealing with trauma you want to feel like you have some stability you have someone that's you're not gonna have to restart every time the new therapist do like a intake and then you get triggered and then six months later you got to do it again it was just very hard and then Now, I started with a great therapist, but I had to pay out of pocket, which is very hard. But thank God I got ASAP now, which helped me. That's an organization that helps people more financially with therapy and therapists that are ASAP approved. You can go to them and you pay like a little bit and
0: they subsidize.
1: Yeah. They pay, I think, like most of it, which is very helpful. But you also have to apply and tell them like what happened. It's very hard. But people are also scared to go to therapy because, well, therapy is scary. And also if you have to pay for it out of pocket and you're ready, hesitant because of how hard it could be, then it's easy to push it off. Then it messes with your relationships and can mess with their marriage. You could have resentment towards people, or you could deal with it in a healthy way, find a therapist. Sometimes it's cheaper to work through your stuff now than later on when you messed up certain relationships. Talking
0: about you can't afford not to go to therapy.
1: Oh, 100%. My wife told me, she's like, one time I was upset and everything. After I got married, I didn't have insurance right away because I know it's like in between jobs and then like a job I used to, have before I got married had had insurance. But in order to keep that insurance, I had to pay eight hundred dollars a month because I wasn't with that job anymore. So then Cobra. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, yeah, it's only eight hundred dollars. Like, oh really? And then eventually my wife's like, you gotta go to therapy. Like just go. Like figure out insurance, whatever it is, find a therapy. Like you need this for you. She saw me struggling. She saw that like how much it can help me. Like I have other outlets. I love going to the gym, hanging out with friends. I love taking care of myself, but you could only do so much. You need a little help.
0: If there's any message that you could share for yourself or for anyone listening, what would it be?
1: That you're not alone. And everyone thinks like a survivor, everyone thinks, or anyone, you think when you go through something, no one understands me. You want to tell it to someone, but you think no one understands. I have the most unique situation in the world. No one else could ever go through what I went through. It's not true. There are plenty of people that have gone through so much, or even if they haven't gone through it, they could still listen and validate you. Sometimes someone that you think is going to validate you isn't as validating as someone that you don't think is going to validate you. You'll be very surprised. If you have a good, good friend or good group of friends, you trust good people. Trust your gut. Always trust your gut in any relationship. When I met my wife, I didn't know I was going to marry her, but I knew I didn't want this feeling to go away. I never wanted the, the dates to end. I just I wanted the date to last forever, and I knew that in my gut. Also, that just because you're a survivor doesn't mean you don't deserve to be happy. Doesn't mean that you don't deserve amazing things and to be loved, and to have a good job. You deserve everything in the world. You're not broken. You're not a victim. You're a survivor.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your story today with us. And I hope there's a second chapter to it. And maybe you'll update us on it when you're on the other side, if you're on the other side. And I'm referring to popping the balloon.
1: Oh, I I understand. (laughs) I think there will be another chapter. But I also have to do it my own way, not my own way. I have to do it at my pace.
0: In your own terms.
1: But you gave me a lot to think about. And I'm counting down until therapy so I can discuss it.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much for listening until the end. As promised, I will be reading to you from one of our listeners today with her permission. I really enjoy your real approach to talking about issues and topics in Judaism, especially given how watered down and censored so much of the conversations tend to be. I'm not one who ever sends feedback to anyone, too busy, but I did want to follow up about your Baal Teshuvah podcast because it hit a nerve. Gvura seems like a lovely person and definitely has her own unique journey, as we all, but I felt like the podcast missed the opportunity to talk about some of the issues that are really at the heart of Baal Teshuvah pain. Gvura seemed so certain in her approach to halacha and Judaism, so adept at using the perfect accent for Jewish terms, clearly a graceful and successful person at what she does. But as a Baal for 10 years in living a modern yeshivish lifestyle in Israel, I can say this on behalf of myself and many friends I went to Baal seminary with and have known over the years, it's so much more complicated than just worrying your kids won't get into the right yeshiva. Some of the issues that are often discussed amongst balteshuvas 10 plus years in, mostly in whispers due to shame, include reaching a place where you suddenly feel oppressed by your role as a woman, questioning your choice of hashkafa that you were told was the only valid approach, now that you have kids in school or are settled in a community, realizing that you behaved completely inappropriately in your efforts to enlighten those in your life often ostracizing them. Feeling weird about having changed your name to a Jewish name, which you were told was your true name. Hearing people say Hashem Yishmor when you tell them your siblings are intermarried. Having people put you on a pedestal as someone that's so inspiring for being BT when you are barely holding it together. Coming to the conclusion that Kirov is predatory and preys on emotionally vulnerable people, even if this is not the intent. I hear this one from tons of friends, putting your family relationships with jeopardy when those are the only people you really have in life. It's made to seem the first few years in care of experiences that your new community will be there for you no matter what. That is not true. Being an outsider in the community that you sacrifice so much to join and being looked down upon, not being given proper advice about things like birth control and getting unhealthy situations that are way above your head with no support. Hearing messages about Kirov like, if you take care of Hashem's children, he'll take care of yours. This message is so inappropriate on so many levels. Being encouraged that Kirov is the most noble pursuit and told that there is a spiritual Holocaust and you have to save the Jewish people. This is so incredibly unhealthy for 99% of BTs who have to focus all their energy on just adjusting themselves and raising a healthy family, which is no small feat. Having to worry about the social stigma of relatively small things like listening to non-Jewish music when you have changed your life more than most people could imagine. Not having proper models for a healthy religious home life. Easier said than done. Cure of professionals, rightly so, often struggle to maintain boundaries and prioritize their personal and family lives when they are so constantly involved in giving back and supporting others. The complaint that BDs are left hanging after the cure of professionals is, quote-unquote, get them through the door to yeshiva or seminary or just more committed lifestyle, I think is missing the point. Because it's true that one person can only do so much and be there for so many people at once, I think the issue is actually much larger. The model of getting as many people through the door and exposing as many people to Orthodox Judaism as possible, when someone becomes newly BT in many ways, they check their free will at the door. It's simply so incredibly overwhelming to completely change your worldview. You're in such a vulnerable position that you literally don't know from down, even if you think you do at the time. If a cure of professional is going to be the catalyst for someone changing their entire life, they and our community at large needs to take responsibility. Oftentimes, if you say to one of your early cure of people, why did you recommend this? They skirt responsibility. Look, ultimately, it was your decision. True, it was their decision, but they lack the tools and perspective to make that decision fully. I could give you a million examples of such decisions, encouraging a 30-year-old BT to stay in Yeshiva for five years instead of pursuing a career. Not recommending birth control to a new couple that met only four months ago and both came from divorced homes and have complicated intimate pasts. Telling a BT they can't go to their sister's intermarriage wedding. It's halakhically not black and white, and we should allow makele opinions for this sake. Supporting a BT in dropping out of college to go to seminary, allowing BTs to spend all Shabbasos and free time with the Kira family as their own family relationships erode, giving BTs the impression that they need to go all the way or only marry true bentora when a more modern Hashkafa would be more suited to them, etc., Maybe Cure of Professionals should stop trying to bring so many people through the door if our community can't take responsibility for the long-term success and welfare of these new recruits. Has anyone taken a step back to look at the BT movement as a whole? How are people managing 10, 20, 30 years in? Where have we not just gone right, but gone wrong? What can we learn from that? I think it would be really interesting to hear from people who don't have such a success story across the board. I can honestly say that a large percentage of the BTs I know have very serious pain and issues around their journey. In many ways, it just gets more complicated as you get older. I can understand that getting a real perspective is not easy. The pain and the real struggles are not something that people want to face up to. It's incriminating. How could you ever question becoming from and getting Olam Haba? That's a very difficult thing to face, especially in a public forum. So thank you so much, dear listener, for taking the time out of your busy life to write this up. I think the episode last week was excellent. I think it was the beginning. It definitely sparked this letter to happen. And I think there are many valid points that I would be happy to address on a future episode. So if you feel this is enough, we can leave it at that. If you do feel like you want to share, maybe reach out. We can talk about creating a follow-up episode. I'd like to remind you that I love hearing from you, that I am a podcast success coach, and I help people launch their podcasts as well as grow them. And I wanted to recommend one more brand for you before we log off. As I was looking for sponsorships and affiliate partners for this podcast, I wanted to make it interesting and bring in opportunities for you that you may not find elsewhere. So here is a recommendation for you. Lots of you reach out to me, you run organizations or you have companies. A lot of you ask about sponsorships and especially for podcasts. So I wanted to recommend this course by Jessica Chinielu, who I actually interviewed this past summer, and I will post the links in the show notes. And stay tuned for next week, We have some incredible episodes. I haven't decided what's coming out next week, but for the remainder part of Adar, we do have some more fun and light episodes for you. Have a great week. See you next time.